may be seated. As we turn to the Lord's word, let us first turn to our Father in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the gift it is to us. We pray that you would speak to us now that the words that are said here would not be merely my words, for if they are merely my words, they are of no use to us. But rather let what comes forth here, what speaks not only to our ears, but to our hearts and to our minds, be your word, your transforming, penetrating, life-giving word. Speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this sermon was supposed to be preached last week. Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, So we're kind of knocked off our schedule a little bit. But but you might recall it two weeks ago when, when we were preaching through Titus, as we have been doing, we were going through the second half of chapter 2. And there was a passage beginning in verse 13 that speaks of how we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it, it just struck me as I was preparing for that sermon two weeks ago that this one little phrase, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, was a phrase that was chock full with all kinds of meaning, all kinds of importance, all kinds of truth that that it could truly just by itself be expounded upon for a full sermon series that would go weeks upon weeks upon weeks. I will not be doing that. But I will be spending today to look at just this one phrase from the Word of God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we need to understand that whenever we open the pages of Scripture, we're, we're looking at something that has context. It has context in that the original author of the Scriptures was writing to an original audience, and we need to understand it in the terms of that context. We also need to understand it in the terms of a larger context. The Bible is woven together by God so that it would have one grand overarching story that it it tells one story from Genesis to Revelation and that basic pattern of that story the basic storyline if you will is one of of creation fall and redemption it follows that pattern creation fall redemption it it's really a pattern that we see played out in many of our stories, and the reason it does play out in stories is because it so resonates with us, because it is so interwoven in our very being, in our very history. You know, what, what's the basic storyline of, of a movie you go see or, or a book that you might read? Is What was it? It's, it's boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, right? Creation, everything is good. Fall, things take a turn for the worse. Redemption. Things end up good in the end. That's the story of the Bible. It truly is. Because God created a world that was perfect. It was wonderful. There was no sin. There was no sorrow. There was no suffering, no pain. Everything was perfect in the garden. But then sin entered the world 
through Adam as he acted on behalf of all of mankind and and through his sin, fallenness and brokenness came into the world, leaving us helpless in a terrible strait in need of redemption. And so it is that this storyline centers on one singular figure, and that person is, as Paul puts it in Titus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now many of you, I'm sure, have have seen the musical, The Sound of Music. Julie Andrews taught us in that musical uh, that it's wise to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. And while that's true with reading, ABC, and with singing, Do, Re, Mi, with this sermon, we're not going to do that. We're going to start at the end and work our way back. So as we look at this phrase, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, I want to start at the end of that phrase with the word Christ and what is meant when we talk about Christ. Now, it's an easy misconception that many of us might have that that Jesus' name was Jesus Christ, just like my name is Pete Scribner. We have a first name and a last name, and, and we might think that, which would mean that, you know, if he was Jesus Christ, then his parents were Joseph and Mary Christ. And, and, but, but that's not the case. Christ actually isn't his name. It's a title. Uh, it's a title. And, and basically what it means is anointed one. It's actually uh, translated out of the Greek. We get Christ. The, the word Messiah is translated out of the Hebrew. And they mean the same thing, anointed one, and particularly one anointed by God to be the covenantal representative of God's people, one to act on behalf of the people of God, one to to be their champion. And so it is that, that throughout the Bible we see other people who served in similar fashions. We see David, of course, who is perhaps the the greatest example of this, one who, who was anointed by God and served as the king of God's people, who fought for them, who protected them, who provided for them, who acted as their champion, their leader. Moses, Joshua, served in a similar capacity as well as they led the people of God out of Egypt and into the promised land the leader of God's people acting on their behalf. But we need to understand when we read the Old Testament, when we read about Moses, when we read about Joshua, when we read about David, that we need to understand these figures, not just on their own terms, not just looking very narrowly just at them, but we understand that they serve to point us forward to Christ Jesus ultimately. They are examples. They are what what is called a type of Jesus. They they point us forward to him. For there was a longing and an expectation for the Christ ever since that first person who acted on behalf of the people, Adam in the garden when he sinned and we fell with him. Ever since then there's been a hunger for redemption, a hunger for things to be set right. 
I know I have that hunger. I know we all have it. We all have something inside us that cries out for justice, that cries out for things to be made right, for them not to be disordered, for them not to be be completely chaotic and without reason, for them not to be wrong and broken. And so it has been for all of history that there is this hunger, even if we don't know exactly what it's for. The Bible is unambiguous, that it, it is the peace, the shalom that comes through the coming of the Messiah, through his ordering of all things. In John 4, Jesus came to a woman at the well. She said, I, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see, the Bible's unambiguous about this. It's very clear. Jesus is this Christ, this Messiah, this one who ultimately comes on behalf of the people of God and acts on their behalf, who sets all things to right. John, the apostle, writes in his gospel in chapter 20 that the whole gospel is written, as a matter of fact, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, he says, Jesus is the Christ, and I, I wrote to this whole gospel so that you might know that he is the Christ. And furthermore, he expounds on that, saying that the Christ is the Son of God. He is fully divine. He is God in the flesh. And John would later write in his epistle, 1 John, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You see, that's what he's calling on us to do. And that's what I'm calling on you to do today. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. He is this figure who God has put forth to make all things right. He is the one who conquers sin and death and Satan. He is the one who, who defeats all of his enemies and the one who brings us into his fold, the one who, who invites us to be part of his family, part of his kingdom, to be united with him to experience all the benefits that he has earned. I call on you today, believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so it is, he is called Jesus Christ. Now Jesus was an ordinary name. In our culture, we, we don't hear of many people named Jesus anymore. There still, still are cultures where, where you might see people who have this name. Uh, but, but there is a name that, that we do use a lot. It's the name Joshua. And what we need to understand is just as uh, Jesus is a translation of his name coming out of the Greek, so Joshua is an English translation of the very same name coming through the Hebrew. See, Jesus and Joshua are the same name, really. So 
So much so that, that as Jesus was a child, you know, friends at school or in the neighborhood might have called him Josh. Just an ordinary name for an ordinary guy. You see, while Jesus was fully divine and is fully divine, the fact of the matter is, at the same time, Jesus is fully human, a man with flesh and blood like you and me. Jesus hungered and needed to eat. He grew tired and needed to sleep. Pardon me if it, if it seems sacrilegious, but, but I want to make sure we understand this. But, you know, Jesus, when he became a teenager, started to smell kind of funny. And he had to bathe. He was a human being, just like you and me. Jesus, when he had a taco, might have had a stomach ache afterwards. You know, he's a little too spicy for him. I know he didn't eat tacos, but you know, if he had, he he was flesh and blood, human being, like you and me, an ordinary guy with an ordinary name. Except his name, we need to understand, has a lot of meaning behind it. Biblical names tended to have a lot of meaning behind them. When we look at names throughout the Bible, oftentimes they'll say, you know, it was named this, which means this. And, and we look at Jesus' name, and it's not a name that Joseph and Mary just came up with on their own, is it? Because we remember that, that an angel came to Joseph and said, uh, that, that Mary is going to have this child, and don't worry, it, it's uh, the Holy Spirit has conceived this child in her, and you will call his name Jesus. That is what he was to be called. That's on direct order from God, that he would be called Jesus. And this name Jesus, this name Joshua, this, in, in the Hebrew it would have been Yeshua, is how it would have been pronounced, it, it means something very specific. You see, the, the ya at the beginning is, is a shortened form. It's contraction of, of the word Yahweh, which was the name of God. And the, the shua part on the back basically means saves. So, so what it means is God saves. That's what Jesus means. God saves. His very name is a reminder of the gospel. Because that is the core of the gospel, is it not? That God saves. We don't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. There's no amount of good works, no, no personal holiness that we can conjure up from within ourselves that enables us to save ourselves. Rather, God saves, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2 tells us. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We cannot save ourselves. Furthermore, we cannot even turn to Jesus for him to save us without God doing it. Jesus says in John 6, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We can do nothing to save ourselves. We stand in need 
of a savior. We turn back to our phrase. He is our savior, Jesus Christ. Now what do we need to be saved from? Well, we need to be saved from sin and its effects and its power. For the wages of sin is death, we're told. And we look around our world and we don't need to look very far, do we? We see death and brokenness and and decay all around us. And there's a need that we take ownership of this. You see, it entered the world, as we said, through Adam's sin, when Adam fell in the garden, acting on our behalf. But at the same time, even if we weren't credited with Adam's sin, if we didn't inherit that from him, there's not a one of us who could say by the end of this day that I've gone all day without sinning. There's not a one of us. We each walk in that sin. We, we revel in our sin. We turn back to it time and time again. We need to take ownership of it. We need to repent of it and seek God's forgiveness, a forgiveness that we could never earn. It is a completely unpayable debt that we have accrued. To put it in perspective, I I saw this just last week. Uh, Forbes magazine came out with their list of billionaires. And I think there were there were 1,645 people listed on, on this list of billionaires right now. And, and uh, at the top of the list was Bill Gates. Bill Gates is doing pretty well for himself, in case you hadn't noticed. They, they had his worth listed at $76 billion. Um, that is a number that is, is so big that our minds can't really comprehend it. So I wanted to kind of break it down a little bit just to kind of make it easier for us. Just think in these terms. Look around the sanctuary. Let's imagine, and this is just imagining, that each one of the people here had a personal worth of $50 million. Okay? Everybody here has $50 million. We're all doing pretty well for ourselves at that point. $50 million net worth for each person here. Bill Gates still has 10 times as much worth as this room. Okay? So it's just, we can't even imagine how much money that is. It just blows our mind away. And yet, if we went to Bill Gates and said, Bill, we heard you're very philanthropic. Uh, We'd like you to pay off the national debt. Well, there's a problem here, you see, because for all of Bill Gates' worth, which is far beyond anything we could possibly dream or imagine, his total worth is still less than one-half of one percent of the national debt. You see, he, he would be thoroughly, thoroughly incapable of paying off that debt. And he is the richest of the rich. How much more so those of us... Right? Uh, if we tried to stroke a check to bail the country out of that, that debt, well, that'd just be silly. But you see, that's what we do when we come before God. We say, you know, I've got this personal holiness. I think I've been a good person. I think I've lived my life in such a way. I've tried hard, and surely, surely that must do the trick. Right? That's what we say, but when we come before God, we're like 
an average person saying, I think I'll try to pay off the national debt. It's impossible. Even if your personal holiness, even if the way you've lived your life rises to the level that it is the equivalent of Bill Gates's personal worth, still your holiness is less than one half of 1% of what is required to pay off the debt that you owe. What we need is somebody of infinite worth, of infinite holiness to pay off this debt. If only there were such a person who could do this on our behalf. If only we had a king. If only we had a champion of infinite worth and infinite holiness. Of course we do. That person is Christ Jesus our Lord. And so it is that he has paid that debt. And we do have forgiveness in him for he has died for our sins and risen from the dead and ascended on high from whence he will return. And when he does return, he will set all things right. And the the whole creation longs for that day. Romans 8 tells us that, that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That day will come and and no longer will there be death or decay and, and everything on that macro, giant, cosmic level will be made right. But it's also on the very personal, micro level. For Romans 8 goes on to say, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies you see jesus comes to set the world right but he also comes to take his children those those who are adopted by god to make them perfect and what a wonderful thing we're we're saved not just our souls we talk about he came to save our souls but it's not just our souls he came to save You see, because we are not just souls. We think of that sometimes like, well, the real you is your soul. But that's not true. We were created to be what what one person has called a psychosomatic unity. It is, is a soul and a body together. And so when we die, even as our soul goes to be with the Lord, there is something wrong there. There is something missing because there will be a day when it will be made right, when our souls and a resurrection body will be united again, and we will have perfect bodies which no longer break down, which no longer get sick, which no longer experience pain. What a day that will be! And glory of glories. The most wonderful thing about our perfect bodies is that they will no longer sin. Oh, for such a body and such an existence to live our lives fully each day, working out good works, living out the life that God has planned for us. For he gave himself, Titus 2.14 tells us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what our ultimate end will be. We will be zealous for all of eternity for the good works of God to do that which he would have us do. And if that is what our ultimate end is, then shouldn't that have an impact on us today? There's a line in the movie When Harry Met Sally toward the end of the movie where Billy Crystal's character says to Meg Ryan's character, 
when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to begin as soon as possible. And shouldn't the same be true of our relationship with God? When we realize what he has created us for, when we realize how he will have us be for all of eternity, shouldn't we long to be that way now? Let that begin now. Let that change take part in our lives now. Let us not wait. Let us live our lives now as we will forever. Let us live not for ourselves, but let us live for God. And not just some generic God who is unknown, but the God who has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. For Jesus is God. He is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In John 1, we read, In the beginning the word was in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. It's talking about Jesus here, in case we aren't sure, just a couple of verses later. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is our God and Savior. Jesus Christ. Hebrews puts it this way. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. All things were created by him and for him, and in him are all things held together. He is God Almighty. What a wonderful truth. And he is great. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We said it earlier in the children's message, didn't we? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Well, yeah, Pete, we know there aren't really even other gods, are there? He's the only God. It's not really saying much to say he's God above all gods when there aren't any other gods. But I would argue we do have other gods. One person said that that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can ultimately give. You see, we, we have all sorts of things that fit that bill, don't we? Perhaps it's acceptance from certain people or from people in general. Perhaps it's success or comfort or security or wealth or even really good things like, like family and love. You know, these are good things, but when we seek to make them ultimate things, They become our gods. But they are false gods. They cannot ultimately ultimately fulfill us. They cannot ultimately provide those things that they, they offer to us. So they are idols. And we must reject them as gods. Not saying that we reject them altogether, but we put them in their proper place. As good things that God has given us. Good gifts from a good giver who loves us but not gods in and of themselves. He must be our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is glorious. He is worthy. He is mighty. He is awesome, but best of all, he is not just the 
great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He is our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful word, just a little, little, tiny three-letter word, our. But it makes all the difference in the world. You see, because if he's just a great God and Savior, but not our great God and Savior, we are still lost. When something is yours, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes your whole perspective on it. I think back to my first car. My first car, this was in, in 1987, I guess, 88, 1988. It was a 1976 Plymouth Valari station wagon. Three-speed stick shift. Red vinyl seats, no air conditioning in the St. Louis summer. An AM radio that didn't work because the antenna had rusted out. Except for one station, which had a very high wattage. But when you turn on the headlights, that station shorted out as well. The speedometer didn't work, so I didn't know how fast I was going. But it really didn't matter because the car didn't go very fast. I loved that car. You know why I loved it? Because it was mine. It was mine. If I loved that car because it was mine, how much more ought I to love a God who is mine, a God who is of infinite worth and infinite value? How much more should I seek to sing his praises? How much more should I rejoice in his goodness? How much more should I be excited at his person and the fact that I am his and he is mine. What joy there is at knowing he is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is ours and we are his. He is our Father, our friend, our Redeemer, our holiness. He is our everything. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, words can hardly express the thankfulness that we have, the joy that we share because of who you are and what you have done and because of who we are as a result of those things that you have done. We thank you, but beyond thanking you, we praise you. Not just thanking you for what you have done, but but praising you for who you are. You are a great God, worthy of all praise, We rejoice that you are our great God. Thank you. Thank you. There is none like Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.
Please rise now as we sing our concluding hymn, hymn number 506.